You're listening to Red Nation Online. You're listening to the Paul James and Soccer Podcast. Commentary and analysis by Paul James, former Canadian soccer player, television analyst, coach, and member of the Canadian Soccer Hall of Fame. Well, here we are back with episode 40 of the Paul James on Soccer podcast. And as we've done on our last several episodes, we have someone sitting in for Paul James. Filling in for Paul once again this week is former Canadian international and Vancouver Whitecaps defender Chris Williams. Chris, it's great to chat with you again. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on again. All right. Now, um, the big story over the last week, week to 10 days, has been um, the Canadian women's national team and the Olympic qualifying tournament that was... uh, that was held in Vancouver. Now, the most important thing, you know, we're, we'll talk a little bit about the U.S. game um, in a few minutes, but the most important thing is that Canada got the uh, main job done and, and is qualified and going to the London Olympics. So in that sense, the team looks like they've exercised a few d- demons related to their struggles at the Women's World Cup in Germany, and they had some dominant performances and played some pretty, uh, pretty impressive soccer at times. You know, at the tournament as a whole, looking at the tournament as a whole, what are your thoughts on, on Canada's performance? Yes, Steve. I think the first point to make is Canada's effort and attitude on and off the field was first rate. Looking at the, the team and the players, um, I, I, can't, uh, I can't say enough. I'm excited. Um, we're dealing with uh, a tournament, qualifications for the Olympic tournament, the Olympic Games in London, and I think that because Canada did qualify, I think we have to be ecstatic as fans and supporters, and, and they should be recognized And because of their efforts. It's encouraging to see you know, athletes uh, from Canada, and, and obviously what was encouraging to me as well was the fans, uh, spurring them on to qualify for the Olympics. And as you mentioned, the Canadians had to overcome disappointment from the World Cup and look ahead to the tournament. So they, as a whole, the, the group should be commended and as a Canadian, I'm proud to say that and even feel a connection with some of the players that I know from, from Canada. I, I think that uh, all Canadians should feel connected because once the Olympics start, we'll, we'll all be cheering them on. And, and hopefully, you know, hopefully for them, they'll be coming home for, uh, with a medal and hopefully it's gold. Do you think um, Christine Sinclair should be Canada's flag bearer? Um, I, I think so. I think uh, she's earned it. I think it would be great for soccer as a whole. I think about uh, all of the, the youth players, the, the girls who play soccer and look to Christine St. Clair as a role model. I think she deserves it. She, she definitely has put in the time and she's been successful. She's gone down to the U.S. at the collegiate level and excelled there, and I think she deserves that. And for Canada to acknowledge her, I think it would be great for, for soccer, women's soccer, and for soccer in general. So um, I hope that Canada grants her that. Now, obviously, the qualification was the the most important thing. That was the main goal of the tournament, and Canada achieved that. But certainly, uh, the cherry on top would have been, um, you know, a strong performance and maybe a draw or even, um, you know, a long-awaited victory over the United States. That didn't happen. The United States was uh, was pretty dominant. Um, it, you know, the, the two main things to take from that match were the fact that, um, you know, they really focused just on, on shutting down Christine Sinclair and then the pace that some of their forwards had seemed to really give um, 
the Canadian back line some problems. You know, what did you what did you take from that match? Um, also taking into account the fact that the U.S. Um, had quite a few pl- fresh players into the lineup for that match, whereas um, you know Canada doesn't have as much depth. And I think uh, you know they played a lot of games over like the last ten days. Yes, I you know before the match starts, I'm almost feeling like I'm a part of, of Canada and rolling up my sleeves, getting ready to play in the U.S. And you know I'm excited and ready to see a, a game that's you know filled with goals and and for Canada's side, but it wasn't that way. Canada struggled because, you know, and you alluded to something there, in depth. Uh, the Americans, they have a depth that, that we just don't have as a country with, with women's players there and the quality of players. Uh, the game was, in the beginning, for me, I, I believe that Canada would do well, even though, and if I stand corrected, I believe the U.S. scored after seven or eight minutes. And, um, you know, after that goal, I still thought that Canada could find the, an, an equalizing goal. And, and come back, but it, but it wasn't to be. So you can see where the athleticism and the physicality of the Americans, they definitely outmatched and outshined uh, the determination and tenacity of the Canadians, um, which unfortunate, unfortunately for, for Canada, they, they didn't win the, the final match. But not to take away from the Canadians' effort and from, you know, I guess, I guess the word would be, you know, really achieving the the final outcome which was to qualify for the olympics but but again the match was just um it, it was a it was an exciting match for me to watch as a soccer fan but disappointing from a, a canadian supporter standpoint um but but yeah nonetheless canada deserves to go to the olympics and they are so it's good to see now looking at at john herdman um you know that was probably something of a learning experience for him and he rightly pointed out you know it's a learning experience for the players as well I think it's important to remember that, um, not to make excuses, but the you know the Canadian team is still a few months in with a new coach, whereas the U.S. team is uh, is pretty much a well-oiled machine at this point. Um, but at the same time, if we look at it with a critical eye in terms of um, uh, you know Herdman's tactics, I- I'm wondering you know he, they kind of came out and played the same way that they played against um, you know some of the lesser teams like Haiti that they played at the at the beginning of the tournament. You know, you were a former defender and, you know, dealing with forwards like that. Should Canada have adopted more of a bunker mentality and, you know, maybe sat back a little more and, and not being caught? Because those first two goals seem to be with the defenders getting caught and then not being able to uh, catch up or pace. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I was thinking about that, as I, I can see in my, my mind right now, Morgan running past uh, the Canadian back line. And uh, not to be, don't want to be too critical of Canada's performance because, again, they qualified and they, they've done their job there. And you spoke about Herdman's tactics. Um, there was, I think, before the second goal, Desiree Scott, she might have uh, mistimed the challenge or she lost on the challenge. In a way, the Americans went. And before you knew it, the, the ball was in the back of the net. And um, I do believe once you see that Morgan is a threat, you have to handle that. I'm not too sure which player. I look at the back line, and maybe Candace Chapman uh, could have handled Morgan, you know, with her athleticism and pace. Uh, somehow, I think right away, John Herdman should have recognized that. But uh, I don't even want to be critical of him because, again, it's about depth and it's about using, you know, the resources and players that you have at your disposal. So I think he, I think he's done well there. But I think he could have addressed it once he saw Morgan in the pace of the. The fours. I think he could have done something, but uh, then again, he's the national team coach, and I'm not. So, um, but but I think he should still be commended 
because he's taken a, a certain approach with his philosophy, and that's a mental approach. And uh, I'm not sure if you're going to allude to that, but um, his mental approach for me is, is fantastic, especially because they were coming off a downer from the, the World Cup. I don't think you can look at the tournament, you know, as, as anything but a positive, considering you know what they were coming off of. Um, I also like the you know the way they were playing. In, from a tactical sense, in in terms of it, didn't seem to be as rigid and strict as as the way they played under Carolina Marache, where it was pretty much always the ball coming out of the back and and trying to maintain position. They seem to have a nice mix of of playing the ball on the ground, going more direct sometimes, and and just mixing up the play a lot. You, you know, what did you think about that? Are they looking like a more versatile team under Herdman? Again, yeah, I think they do look versatile. I think he has to continue working with the players. And, and once, you could see it actually, once Canada did win the ball back, they regained possession from the U.S., they played into the midfield and they got it wide. I think, he, I mean, as a fan, I was excited. I was thinking, okay, here we go. Uh, the Americans are on their heels. I think that um, they need to be even more direct in their play. And when I say direct, I don't mean knocking a long ball, a hopeless long ball. I mean playing direct or running at a defender um, and getting across him. And I think putting, placing the Americans on their heels and you could see it. I think Julien, the forward, broke through a couple of times, and uh, the Americans showed some type of vulnerability at the back. So I, I do think Herbin's on the right track, and, and now he has some time to, to continue working with, with his players on, on his system and style of play. As is always the case with the Canadian women's national team, uh, Christine Sinclair was simply astounding at this tournament. She scored nine more goals to, uh, to add to her... Um, you know, incredible tally at the international level. Uh, Herdman played her at both striker and as an attacking midfielder. Um, I actually like her at the attacking midfielder spot, you know, considering the fact that she can set up other players. There was the one play where she, um, you know, turned and, set and, and sent in that, that ball perfectly that, um, that Kaylin Kyle headed in for a goal. Um, and I think it just allows her to sort of direct play a little bit more. Which position do you prefer her at? I actually like Christine St. Clair as a forward. I, I don't know if it's because when she was in college, I, I used to, to watch games where she would play as a striker, and uh, even with Canada, she just looks dangerous around goal. And as Canada's most you know potent striker, I think you, you want your, your, a player like that around the goal uh, to pounce on anything. And I think maybe you know employing a, a different type of um, tactic where they can go a, a 4 4 one, one, um, where she's just behind a striker um, there's different situations different tactics that you can you can have Christine St. Clair playing off a striker playing as that attacking midfielder but I, I like her as the, the striker you know playing playing up front and looking and in, 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 uh, you know looking hungry for a goal just around the 18 yard box so um, that's my thoughts but I, again I, I think Christine St. Clair should be commended she's she's uh, she has a great supporting cast but she's definitely the leader on, on Canada she is the leader, but there's always that question as to whether the team depends on her too much. Uh, the U.S. went into uh, you know the game on on Sunday with a clear plan of, of shutting down Christine Sinclair, and they pretty much did that. And that was one reason why I you know I thought about maybe Herdman should have considered starting her an attacking midfielder, in the sense that she just wasn't getting any of the service. I remember in you know in the in the lead up to the match, they they quoted the U.S. coach saying that. Uh, yeah, she thinks that uh, Christine Sinclair is definitely the second best player in the world, uh, alluding to uh, to Abby Wambach. And I, I, you know, I, I don't agree with that at all. Wambach's a great player, but 
she doesn't have to do as much and she doesn't have as much attention from opposing defenses just because there is more talent on on the u.s team so you know an interesting thing about the tournament of a whole was the wild card of of sydney laroe um in the sense that i think if if canada needed anything it might have been a laroe coming on for canada you know as that other option in, in which case you couldn't put all your you know defenders on on shutting down christine sinclair you know, what do you think about that whole story and the whole dynamic there? I mean, she could be the next next one for Canada. Certainly would have been um, a nice option to have in that game. Yeah, Sydney LaRouche, it's, a, it's an interesting story. She's, she's definitely Canadian, but um, she had a, a clear goal in mind. And, and just reading a little bit about her story and hearing her speak about that, um, you know, going down to the U.S. And, and wanting to pursue soccer at the collegiate level and excelling there, um, it's it's a it's a tough one because I, I think you know as a aspiring soccer player when I was young I, I wanted to I wanted to go to Italy I wanted to play in England I, I wanted to to do anything but I also wanted to play for for my country but um, she she's definitely a, a good player and she could have been you know the next face of Canada soccer and she's not she's with the U S and I just think you know I I don't wish her any bad luck I, I think that. She definitely has qualities as a player, and I commend her for for going down to the U.S. and, and making a go at it. Um, she's definitely going to be utilized in the U.S. system, and um, Canada's Canada's loss, I guess. Um, there's something could have been done maybe to keep her, but at the same time, Sydney Larue wanted to play for the U.S. and she did. So maybe as fans, you know, I ask the fans, the supporters, do we embrace her back? You know, back into Canada? Do we do we embrace her? But um, you know, it's a sport. It's uh, not life and death, but definitely um, she. I, I commend her for for making that choice, and she went with it, and it's paying off for her as an individual, anyway. So, well, it's going to be interesting to watch, you know, down the road how uh, how Canada deals with that. Certainly, when you have a player like Christine Sinclair, uh, you want to utilize her and and um, you know get the most out of her that, that you possibly can, and, and Canada has done that. But at the same time, it looks like they're going to need to. Um, diversify their offense a little bit if um, you know they want to have any hopes of uh, defeating the US anytime soon. Yes. Now one other very positive aspect of the Olympic qualifying tournament and you've alluded to it already uh, earlier in, in the conversation was the excellent fan support and the constant media coverage. I know a big part of that has to do with the fact that the tournament was held in Canada in Vancouver. At the same time it still has been great to see the women's national team getting so much publicity and coverage. You know, what do you think? If is the coverage a sign of the increased profile of the sport in Canada, or is it more a case of major media companies ramping up in advance of Canada hosting the Women's World Cup in 2015? Um, I think it's a bit of both. I, I believe that the profile of of the sport has definitely increased uh, in terms of the the World Cup uh, 2015. I, I don't know if uh, we look that far ahead, but at the same time, I say why not? Uh, I believe the corporate sponsors are definitely um, they're hip to it. They understand, you know, what's coming, you know, what's down the road. I just think it's an increased um, profile of the sport, and I, I, from uh, attendance, the attendance was great. It's a great success. Uh, people were buzzing on the streets of Vancouver, and whenever you have a Canadian team up for qualification to represent the nation at a major tournament, um, especially the Olympics. There's uh, no greater greater thing to have your your country support that 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 team. So, but the media coverage definitely it was great to see. Again, uh, Canada and soccer 
it's almost uh, you're waiting, you're hoping that it's eventually going to arrive. And, and for women's soccer, I think it has. I think it was a great reception they received there. So, again, Vancouver has been host to another great event, and uh, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, kudos to uh, you know to Vancouver and to everyone that was involved with the event and all the players on the women's national team. Uh, in particular, uh, Sophie Schmidt and... Um, and Desiree Scott both stood out for me as uh, players that could, I think can play an even bigger role in future matches. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. Now, moving on, one of the more recent, uh, you know, sort of disconcerting stories in Canadian soccer involved Canadian national team midfielder uh, Josh Simpson terminating his contract with Turkish side Menisaspor due to unpaid wages. Well, it seemed to come out of the blue considering that Simpson has always professed that he was really happy with Menisaspor. It was equally troubling to hear that Simpson's agent did state publicly that the issue had been ongoing for a number of months. Um, Simpson's not the first Canadian player to struggle with unpaid wages in Europe, and I'm guessing that we don't always hear about these things. Uh, you played in Europe with uh, Czech Republic side SK Kladno. Did you ever experience anything like this during your playing career? Yeah, I'll get back to, to my experience with, with SK Kladno in the Czech Republic. Just to touch on Josh. Um, you know, he's really carved a career out for himself from his beginnings in Katoria, uh, going, progressing through the ranks with the national team and playing European football. It's a great story. I think Canadians should, should really appreciate that story and, and uh, feel proud that they have someone, you know, a figure like that, someone that's going to come a long way anyways. Um, another thing, Josh, he hasn't publicly come out. He has not done that and criticized and slammed his club. I think it shows a great sign of maturity and professionalism from his standpoint and um, you know he's allowed his agent and trusted his agent to handle the, the business side of things and now he's moved on to another club and the league from which I, I believe it should be more stable for him in, in the, the top division in Switzerland and uh, even though you know every I believe every country has its issues um, even in the UK in the Premiership um, you see certain situations where clubs are financially unstable so um, Switzerland has their own case with the second division club. I think an owner was was um, arrested for, for fraud and, and money laundering. So hopefully that doesn't happen to Josh because, um, you know, I think, he, I think he's picked a league, selected a league there and is through his agent as well um, where he can excel. So going back and speaking about my situation with Oscar Kladno, uh, I experienced a similar situation where the club wasn't paying my wages and honoring, you know, the stipulations in my contract. And, and it is a tough, it's a tough situation because I remember going through World Cup qualifications. I was in the player pool and being in Europe, you know, you, you want to play at the highest level and I was playing the top division there. So I, I tried to, to stick it out and uh, even tried to arrange a loan agreement uh, through, through my, my agent because my agent was even unwilling to confront my club. Um, he didn't want to rock the boat as he called it. But um, I think it's just in Europe, and, and maybe not even in Europe, all over the world, when you're dealing with, with money and, and, and agents and contracts and club directors and coaches. It's big business, right? So you're dealing with some unscrupulous people, and, and it doesn't always work out for, for the best. So, um, but, but anyways, to touch on my situation just a little bit there, it's going back to, to Kladno and, and, and not, I guess, not coming out on top was, was a, maybe a regret, but at the same time, my, my experience in Europe was great. And I actually did play for Canada, I think it was that same year. And um, so I, I did make it. Uh, unfortunately for us, we, we didn't qualify for the World Cup, of course. But um, 
yeah, that happens in football. It's big business. And I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that, you know, some of the biggest names in Canadian soccer, they've gone through similar situations with, with big name clubs. So it's not unheard of. And uh, I think it's just, just how you go about your business when you're there and you're in those situations. Now, once word had gotten out that Simpson had left Manisaspor, uh, the rumor kick, rumor mill kicked in with, um, you know, people wondering where, uh, where Josh was going to go next. And, you know, people were speculating that he might come back to uh, Canada and play for Vancouver. Others speculated that he might return to his former club, uh, Kaiserslautern, to play in Germany. Um, he did sign in Switzerland with, um, with BSC Young Boys. Uh, they're a good team. At the same time, people are wondering if that was the highest level possible. Uh, you know, how does the Swiss Super League compare to other leagues in Europe? Um, interestingly, Eric Hasley from the Vancouver Whitecaps has played much of his career, um, you know, in Europe, and he played in Switzerland, and, and he's an exceptional player. So I'm, I'm wondering, do you know much about the quality of, uh, of the Swiss top flight? Yes, I know, I know a little bit about it. I think it's on par with the Zweibundesliga, uh, the second division in, in Germany, uh, which Josh is no stranger to. I think it's on par. Um, and what I think that move for Josh is fantastic because I think he'll launch himself from the Swiss League and possibly go to a you know a, a league that's more more claimed, more esteemed, and, and possibly earn a, a higher earning contract. So uh, I think it's a great a great league. I think Josh will excel there. His attributes, you know, he's quick, he's athletic, he's technically sound. Um, especially the player that that he is, physicality of the league it suits him just fine. The Swiss League, in my opinion, um, isn't isn't beyond Josh's reach in terms of being being a star there. Uh, as you touched on, Eric Hasley's played in Europe for most of his career. He played in Switzerland, and he, he played very well for FC Zurich. So um, I think, especially seeing Eric in the MLS, I think uh, it's a it's a good good comparison. Just because not in terms of the player players, the two players we're mentioning here, but um, I think it's a launching pad for for a player with ability, such as Josh or a player like Eric. So uh, I think Josh will excel. So, you know, moving back to uh, the local scene here in Toronto, uh, TFC held their annual media festivities last week to announce the kickoff of the team's preseason. If there was one word that perfectly characterized the pre proceedings, uh, it had to be uh, continuity, as every media outlet has generally characterized this year's edition as very different from past iterations that suffered from drastic player turnover and basically a new coach every season. Did you get a chance to follow any of the uh, TFC coverage from that media event? And if so, what were your impressions? Yeah, continuity is a good word. I, I follow the media coverage from a distance. Um, I, I, it's great to see that uh, the media, from the media perspective, there wasn't much fuss and critical questions. Uh, Steve, you were probably there and right in the thick of things, and, and you probably didn't see anybody fire any critical questions towards coaches, the executives, and players. So um, I think it's fantastic that in, in the North American sports market, like Toronto, uh, soccer's covered to that extent. And the MLSC, if I'm not mistaken, they cater to the media. They understand how to portray the club amongst the media and fans. I also believe Aaron Vinter's characteristics and tone has, has played, uh, I don't know how much of a role, but I, I think it's played some role um, in terms of how, how the club goes about their business on, on a day like Media Day. And um, I think it's fantastic, again, um, speaking about the media and covering you know, soccer in, in Toronto, it's fantastic, the coverage that we're getting. So um, I'm looking forward to more. 
So the core of the team from uh, from the last half of the season, after they had that major, uh, you know, reshuffling of the squad in uh, in last summer, is back. So Frings was back, Kuvarins was back. The only player who of note who really didn't uh, return to the team was uh, was Andy Iro. Um, but the team did announce the acquisition of one new player to replace Iro, and that was a central defender in Ecuador international Giovanni Casado who looks like um, you know he could have the pedigree to be a real difference maker for the team. On past podcasts, Paul and I discussed the fact that in, in previous years, TFC did not seem to follow the lead of the successful clubs in the MLS who are doing very well by signing players from South America. How do you, important do you think it is that TFC has brought in at least one impact player for its back line? And how important do you think it is that TFC is finally looking south? Yeah, I think it's uh, a good signing. I think that Aaron Vinter's tone, once again, his his uh, strategy of signing Giovanni Casado is definitely um, a positive, and him joining the back line uh, because of his international experience, which is key, of course. He's been a part of Ecuador's Copa America side in 2011 and uh, seems to have that pedigree that TFC needs, especially because I, I think that TFC needed that addition or needed some addition to, to solidify the back line. Um, obviously, Toronto is limited because of their salary cap, and that situation has really, I guess, strangled them in a, in a situation where they have to look for certain players that fit that mold, that fit Aaron Vinter's style of play. And, and hopefully for, for Toronto, they, they've done that. Um, speaking about your, your assessment for going south, I don't know if it's so much about signing players from a specific region. Uh, I think it's signing a player who fits the coaching style and philosophy. Um, if I... If, I, if you maybe you know this, the player who was from Argentina, I, actually I do know, it's Pablo Viti, Pablo Viti uh, from Argentina, and uh, he was a South American, and I, from what I saw, I think he struggled. I just believe that because of Aaron Vinter's uh, style and philosophy, I think that it has to be a player, and that player could have been from Asia, could have been from Europe, but I think he's found his player in Giovanni Casado, and hopefully, hopefully we'll see that in, during the season, and, and he'll be successful. It's interesting that you bring up Pablo, Pablo Vidi because uh, there were a few rumors, um, and some have suggested those rumors were started by Pablo Vidi and his agent, that um, that TFC was actually interested in bringing him back. And, and, you know, around that idea, there was a debate as to, um, you know, whether he would fit better into Aaron Vinter's system the second time around. Uh, Paul pretty much put the kibosh on that and figured, uh, you know, he didn't play well the first time. They'd be crazy to bring him back, especially at the type of salary which he would be expecting. But I think when I, when I, you know, I've referred in the past in, in articles to, uh, you know, TFC, you know, doing a better job of scouting and, and bringing players from South America. I just think there's, there's a more, you can find more cost-effective players down there, and other teams have done that. Whereas, you know, you can't bring so many stars or even you know, non-stars who are used to a certain salary at even the second second or third divisions in places like Italy and, and Germany and whatnot in terms of salary. So I think South America is where it's at. And I like the fact that now we've got about, you know, four or five guys that I can't interview because I don't speak Spanish, but I think that it's going to do well on the pitch. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, Stephen. Maybe you should brush up on your Spanish coming, coming up. Maybe there's some more signings from South America on the horizon. And I think, you know, Jao Plata is one of those players, right, that uh, his salary, not too sure what it is, but uh, he's been very effective for TFC, and uh, hopefully there's more to come. 
So I think they've done a fairly decent job with the with the salary limitations that they had in the salary cap space that they had over this offseason. You know, the, the new players, Reggie Lamb, Casado, and, and, and several others, look like they could play roles for this team. So it looks like the TFC roster is set. And I'm going to put you on the spot early and ask you whether or not you think Toronto FC will make the playoffs this year. Uh, great for asking me to put me on the spot there. I think TFC will make the playoffs this year. Uh, if they can gain some momentum, especially from their Champions League tilt with uh, Galaxy, hopefully get a victory and progressing through that stage. I know some people will be shocked with that, but I, I believe Aaron Vinter is a strategist and he will be ready and he'll have the team ready for, for those matches. So if they can gain some momentum from that and um, you know endure that, that bombardment that they're going to get from L.A., I think carrying on from that, that stage, that Champions League stage, um, the, the club, it will bode well for the club, obviously, in the, the long season. And hopefully they'll be rewarded at the end of it and find themselves in a playoff position. So I do believe they will make the playoffs. All right. Now the mood around Toronto FC is, is quite buoyant right now. Um, you know, there, it, there's positivity there. I think a lot of people share your views. I think Toronto FC is finally going to make the playoffs as well. But there is one issue that I can see possibly coming to the fore in 2012, and that's how um, TFC head coach Aaron Vinter and Canadian national team head coach Stephen Hart, you know, they might be butting heads in the summer months as they both try and balance their player needs. You know, with TFC un- under that significant pressure to finally qualify for the MLS playoffs, and the Canadian national team trying to qualify for its first World Cup since 1986, I can only imagine that there might be a little bit of a tug of war for players like Julian de Guzman, Terry Dunfield, Ashton Morgan, and Matt Stinson, you know, especially if either Canada or TFC endure injuries to key players. Chris, what's your take on this situation? Yeah, it's an interesting situation. Club, club versus country. Um, I, I believe it could be a tug of war, but I don't think to the the extent that you know even yourself or myself may be thinking i think looking into the future potentially with additions of jonathan de guzman junior hoylet um and i and i will get to where i'm going with those two players i don't think all of the players you mentioned with the exception of julian will be called in for for the world cup qualifying matches i know we get excited when we see matt stinson and uh, ashton morgan we definitely want them to do well and to be called in and to be a part of the World Cup qualifying, you know, roster. Um, but at the same time, they're young players and they have ways to go. So, um, and that's not to discredit their quality at all. I think Steven has other options, other resources to draw from. So I, it may not disrupt Aaron Vinter's, you know, team and season too much. Again, I, I think Julian will definitely be one of those players will be tugging uh, and, and basically thinking, which way do I go? And he'll probably choose his country. But then again, Aaron Vinter has reinforcements because he has Terry Dunfield um, at his disposal. So I think that, that the situation may not be uh, such a conflict as, as you and I may have think, may have thought, um, or others. So I, I think Toronto and Canada will, will benefit from, from the players and the depth that we have, which is a good thing. You know, one final topic for this podcast, looking out west to uh, your former team, the Vancouver Whitecaps, with the drafting of striker Darren Maddox and the acquisition of the rights to uh, Etienne Barbera, who played for uh, Martin Rennie in Carolina last year, uh, those two players to go along with attacking players like Eric Hasley, Camilo, David Chiamento, Atiba Harris, Long Tan, and Omar Salgado, Vancouver looks like it has the makings of a very potent offense next year. 
Um, you know, you can add Russell Tiber to that mix as, as a wide player as well. He's someone that I'm pretty high on. You know, Chris, looking at Vancouver's roster, is there going to be enough minutes to go to go around to keep all the players sharp and have harmony in the locker room? And, you know, and how do you like that attack? I, I actually love that attack. I think there are a lot of options, and there are actually not enough minutes to, to have harmony in the locker room. Um, that's for Martin Rennie to manage, and, and we'll do his best to manage the personalities. I will, will definitely say that, you know, if players are not performing or contributing in a positive manner to help the club win matches, then uh, I'm sure Martin Rennie will, and his staff will act, will act um, by removing any negativity. I think that those names that you mentioned, I mean, you just added in Russell Tiber there, and uh, he's another player, a young player, but he can definitely contribute. And he will pick up the slack if anybody's uh, not contributing. Um, but they, they have great options. And, I, again, Martin Rennie, no matter who the player is, it could be Eric Castley, it could be Camille, it could be Camiento. If they're not on on that given day, on, on match day, then uh, there's someone else waiting in line. And uh, let's hope for the Whitecaps, the Eagles can be controlled and uh, they can look forward and, and look to score goals and, and get in the winning column. Um, I think questions will be asked. You know, you and I will probably ask, well, why are they struggling so much to produce goals if they have all these options? You know, money being wasted if, if they're not going to be producing goals. Um, so there's a bit of pressure there and uh, frustration and pressure and all of those things can, uh, you know, weigh down a locker room and, and hopefully Martin Rennie can get that right, um, right, right from the start of preseason. So, um, or else I believe some players will find themselves out on loan or, or in a possible trade. Let's hope that doesn't happen. Um, but I, I think you would agree, as a coach, as a club, you would rather be in the position where you have ample, you know, firepower, ample options, rather than, than looking to, to who's going to step up and when you, when you don't have any options at your disposal. So it's a good situation. Looking at that group, there's a lot of players that, that need service, um, that are finishers rather than playmakers. At least in terms of the Vancouver offense, you know, does that does that point you know make David Chiamento you know the key player for Vancouver next season? Yeah, I think he's one of them. I think Martin Rennie, the style of play, he will like Davide. Uh, you know, Davide's quick, um, he's great technical ability, and uh, I think Martin Rennie will really enjoy having him at his disposal and and, and using him. You know, and look to him to to be a leader. Uh, I think Davide has yet to show that. In, in his play, and um, he can be more vocal. Uh, let's hope that he that he starts to display that, and Martin Rennie can also give him the boost of confidence that that I think he lacked that last year. I think he lacked a little bit of confidence because you know you saw glimpses of of his brilliance on the ball, but then he would uh, you know disappear for, for the next 35 minutes. So let's hope that it can be more consistent, and Martin Rennie can utilize that. One final item before we uh, wrap up this episode of the podcast. One attacking player who won't be back this year for Vancouver is uh, designated player Mustafa Jarju, whose contract has been bought out by the team. It's an interesting situation. Obviously, uh, Martin Rennie's an incoming coach, and and uh, you just have to respect his expertise and 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 you know let him pick the players that he think are best for uh, the system that he's putting in place. But do you think Jarju got a fair shake in Vancouver? You know, is half a season coming in the middle of the season, coming from Europe to North America? Yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough one for Jarju just coming in um, in the middle of the season, and uh, you know you can look at a few things. The club brought him in as a DP, 
and which means he has a role to play as a, an ambassador to the league and of course one of the, the key faces for the club. Um, he should have been a role model. He should have uh, been someone that the club used to, to promote the game and unfortunately for them his performances on the field were lackluster and, and they were unable to, to capitalize on the player that he should have been. It's a tough situation when you're bringing in. He was a young DP, and obviously people look at the, the dollar signs. How much did he cost? How much did we pay for him? And how much did we pay him? So um, when you look at those things, you know, there's a lot of pressure there. Uh, I can't speak for Jarju. Uh, maybe he just couldn't adapt to the culture. Uh, the schedule of the MLS is tough. It's rigorous. And, um, but the Vancouver Whitecaps is a club. They got that wrong. And, and I think that when you're, you're signing a player, a major signing like that, and, you know, you're touting him as an electric attacking player, and, and then, you know, fans, as a fan, you, you go out and you, you're wishing and hoping that this player displays that, and you're disappointed, you, you question, you know, you question the club. But um, I just think, it, did he get a fair shake? It's such a tough, tough, such a tough, tough question just because Jarju. Uh, Again, he, he was supposed to be the player, and you look at his European club, the club that he's gone back to in Belgium, I believe, um, he scored goals there. And, uh, but I've had the opportunity to watch Chargeau in training last year, and uh, he didn't look like he was excited to be in Vancouver. Um, he looked lethargic, and he didn't look like he was into it. So, um, you know, being a former player, you know, whenever you cross that line, you want to play and give it your all, and Chargeau didn't look like he was happy. So... Um, I guess the rest is history because Martin Rennie definitely assessed them and he moved them out and, and they're moving on. So I will assure you all the best. If you have questions that you'd like Paul to address, please send your email to Paul James at rednationonline.ca.